Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cutting or to tamper with God's word, but the open statement of truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, But the things that are unseen are eternal. Please be seated. If you're not there already, you can find 2 Corinthians in your Bibles or on your electronic device. Have you ever experienced a full moon on a clear night? I'm not one for staying up late. I don't like being up past 9, 10 o'clock. The plane lands early the older I get. But when I'm out camping and kayaking and doing some different things. Maybe you're a hunter and you go out real early in the morning. Uh, Whatever the case is, seeing a full moon on a clear night is glorious. It's amazing what you can see compared to what is normal, whether it's cloudy or dark or sometimes just being in the city, your eyes don't adjust as quickly. But there is a beauty and majesty on display by this lesser light that rules the night. But what happens to the moon when the sun awakens to rule the day? It just totally takes over, doesn't it? So even when both are visible, the glory of the moon is swallowed up by the glory of the sun. In fact, the moon merely reflects the glory of the sun, right? Most illustrations break down at some point, and this one's no exception because the earth is continually rotating, and so this thing becomes cyclical for us. What we're going to see in the text today, there is something a little bit different taking place. Our text this morning is going to contrast two glories, the glory of the old covenant and the glory of the new covenant. One glory has been completely eclipsed by the other. One glory is vastly superior to the other. One glory surpasses the other and permanently swallows up the other by its glory. 
Our study in 2 Corinthians 4 begins this way. If you look at verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. This ministry. What is this ministry? Well, the context, you know, this thing, it forces us back into the context because it begins with therefore and then tells us about something. If we're going to understand that something which happens to be this ministry, we have to consider the context of what's going on. So Paul is trying to communicate something to the church in Corinth regarding this ministry. And we're going to be considering for the first part of this sermon, chapters 3, 5, and 6, so that we can wrap our mind around what is this ministry that Paul is talking about. Well, he starts with a description of this ministry from context. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 6, this ministry is a ministry of the new covenant. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 8, this ministry is a ministry of the Spirit. In 3, 9, it's a ministry of righteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5.18, this ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. That's what's taking place. So when Paul is saying, therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, he means something, and the context is filling us in on what he actually means. He's describing this ministry. Well, this ministry is described throughout this context in a variety of ways. In 3.17, it's described as freedom. In 3.6, as life. This ministry gives life. In 3.14 through 16, it's described as the aroma of Christ. And it gives the fragrance of both life and death to those who are impacted by it. Those who reject the gospel, it's a fragrance of death. Those who receive the gospel by faith, it's a fragrance or aroma of life. In four, chapter 4, verses 4 and 6, it's described as transforming light. In 4.7, he describes this ministry as treasure. And then the one that continues to dominate the description, this ministry is described as glory. In 3.8, it's described as even more glory. In 3.9, excessive glory. In verse 10, it's surpassing glory. And then by the time you get to verse 11 of chapter 3, it's a permanent glory. In 4.17, there's an eternal weight of glory. Glory permeates this entire thing. And not only does he describe and tell us what this ministry that we have in the new covenant, the gospel, we have Jesus. He describes it in these amazingly graphic ways. Now what he's doing is he's going to share the superiority of this new covenant, this gospel of Jesus, by a series of contrasts. So the section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, this may be one of the reasons Paul's continually looked at and seen as someone who doesn't like the law, doesn't appreciate the law, maybe even hates the law. And this section could be one of the reasons why he is viewed like this and why he's continually defending the gospel and the rightful place of the law. And uh, what Paul's doing is he is making it very clear the superiority of the new covenant, the superiority of the gospel of Jesus through a series of contrasts. And so you have to understand all of Paul's writings. You have to read these larger works in order to grasp Paul's theology of the law, all right? Paul gets the big picture. You have to understand how Paul viewed the law. You have to understand what Paul is writing about when he's telling us what the law could and could not accomplish. What is the purpose of the law? Do we understand that? Well, Paul got it. He was one of the religious elite. He was a Pharisee. If anyone had the right or the opportunity to write about the law, this was the guy. He lived under it. He loved it. And now in contrast to the gospel is what he's going to be talking about. He's going to talk about the ongoing role and value of the law. And he does this in works like Romans and Galatians and First Timothy. All throughout Paul's letters, he's constantly having to deal with because people are going, well, wait a second, Paul. 
If you really believe this gospel and all you're talking about is grace, what about the law? And so, in order to not be blindsided by what we see in 2 Corinthians, here's just a little bit of a highlight reel of some of his other works. Now, we're always going to encourage you to read these things in their context, to feel the full weight. You have to read Romans in one sitting. You're like, that's 16 chapters. I know, do it. You'll be blessed. It'll be encouraging. But you'll see Paul's argument regarding the gospel and our need as people. Well, in chapter 4, just even a couple verses, verses uh, 15 and 16, Paul says the law actually brings wrath. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares faith in Abraham. So both Jew and Gentile responding in faith That's how we're made righteous. It rests on grace. To the churches of Galatia, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And there's that pause. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And we encourage you, read all of Galatians and you can see the argument laying out. But later in that chapter, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No way, certainly not, he says. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then in 1 Timothy, he really nails it down when he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There is a right and a wrong way to use the law. And Paul says the law is good if you're going to use it the right way. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And then he continues. In verses 8 through 11, he continues to list some of the different reasons why people would need to be faced with the reality that they can't do anything to save themselves. What is the lawful use of the law? So there's a right way and a wrong way to use the law. So now listen to what Paul is saying by way of contrast. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, listen to verses 4 through 11. You can follow along as I read. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Did you catch the contrasts? We're ministers of a new covenant by the Spirit who gives life versus the letter, the law, which brings death. The letter kills It's a ministry of the Spirit that has even more glory versus the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. It's a ministry of righteousness. And this ministry far exceeds it in glory versus the ministry of condemnation, which had glory. There's tons of contrast. So how did the law, how did the old covenant move from having glory to having no glory at all? What happened? 
It's not because the law wasn't glorious. It's because of what has come in and the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the gospel, the glory of Jesus has surpassed it. By contrast, then, there's really no comparison. If the law could never do what we want it to do, give us life, make us righteous, and Jesus steps in and does that, why in the world are we trying to add this thing to our lives to do for us what it was never intended to do in the first place? This thing was Israel's constitution as they were moving out of Exodus into a new land. This thing would set them apart as God's people. It was the vassal treaty that allowed them to live a certain way and it would set them apart among all these other people. That's glorious. It pointed them to who God was, but it could never save them. It could never transform them. It could never make them righteous. And so Paul's saying that served a purpose and it continues to serve a purpose. And that purpose is to show people that they can never measure up to God's standard. So the law came in with glory, but the glory was being brought to an end. That's verses 11 and 13 of 2 Corinthians 3. That glory was being brought to an end. The gospel, the new covenant, Jesus, the Spirit... This is the permanent glory of verse 11. What does Jesus say about the law in Matthew's account? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish those. I've come to fulfill them. In fact, in the same context in verse 20, he says, you know what, really... You need a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to be more righteous than the religious leaders. And if you're thinking in some way, shape, or form, you're like, okay, that's a high standard, but you know what? I'm looking at my life, I'm looking at my performance, and maybe I can just squeak that thing out if I'm good enough. Later on in chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus sets the standard as unattainable because he says, well, in fact, you have to be perfect as my Father in heaven's perfect. So it's not just that we need this righteousness that's better than the religious elite. It's that we need a righteousness that's perfect. Well, now all of us miss the cut. And the law shows us that. He doesn't lessen it in any way. He actually brings it to the full weight so that we could could stop looking to ourselves to try to do it, perform it, secure it, maintain it. So that we can feel good about ourselves. He's saying you need a righteousness that's completely alien to you. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans. So in Romans 1 through 3, he's laying the groundwork and saying, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And if you think you could, follow my logic and you'll realize that you can't. And then he says, here is how you can be righteous. And then he talks about the righteousness of Christ and what we have in the gospel. And so Romans 3, 21 and following is just just dripping with grace and gospel and some very rich theological words. So Paul's not anti-law. He's just put the law in its right place. The law can't save. The law can't sanctify. The law can't glorify. And so now, and he's telling the church in Corinth that this thing that had glory, now in comparison which there is no comparison. So in contrast, there's no glory at all. Why? Because it's been swallowed up by the glory of Jesus. It's been swallowed up by the new covenant. It's been swallowed up by the Spirit. That's what's going on in the gospel. And so he illustrates this. And he does so through the shining face of Moses. He's, re- he's referring to Exodus 34. Remember when Moses got to be in God's presence, that thing just radiated off of Moses. And so Moses is is reflecting the glory of God and he is just beaming. And the people were scared to death. And so Moses veiled himself, but one of the main reasons why he veiled himself is, guess what, that radiating glory would fade at some point. How would you like to be that religious leader who's leading the people and they, they see the, the fading glory, you know? And it's like, oh man, he's coming down a little bit. 
Well, this is a bold, I think, and shocking move by Paul, but he's further painting this contrast because Moses was an Israelite icon. If you take Abraham, Moses, and David, you almost have the Mount Rushmore for Israel, right? And so now he's picking on one of their favorite people, and he's saying, compared to Jesus, there's no comparison. This old covenant versus the new covenant, there's no comparison, And so what Paul does here is he's using the fading glory of Moses to accomplish two things in this text. What's he trying to accomplish? Well, first, he's trying to prove the hardness of Israel's hearts and minds. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. While in 12, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's crazy. He's trying to drive home the impact and the weight that the law continues to have on the nation of Israel because they're looking to it to do what it was never intended to. And when they do that, they continue to be blinded in heart and mind. And what do they need? They need Jesus. And this veil is only removed by Jesus, and yet they continue to reject Him as their Messiah. Well, that's one thing Paul's doing in this contrast with Moses. But there's another thing, is he is trying to demonstrate the glorious transformation of the gospel and the ongoing impact it has on our lives. Glory, freedom, life, these are all ours in the gospel, and it's on display in this context. And it's contrasting the spiritual blindness and hardness of the nation of Israel's hearts. And they're looking at the text of Scripture. That's what's crazy about this thing. They're looking at God's law, but because they're looking for it to do what it was never intended to do, they miss Him and they actually reject their Messiah. That's crazy. They're looking at the Scripture and through unbelief, their hearts and minds are hardened. Yet, when one turns to the Lord that veil's removed. Can you imagine the process? Rejecting, 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 and finally when they come to faith in Christ and now they're transformed and they see their text in a whole new eyes. They look at the Scriptures from a whole new vantage point. How did we miss this? But in our text this morning, it's referring to the Gospel Our text stands in contrast to what Moses and Israel experienced. So the glory of the gospel far exceeds and outweighs and surpasses the law. So much so that the law is actually described in negative terms here as a ministry of condemnation, as a ministry of death. It kills, it doesn't bring life. So the glory that radiates in us and through us to those around us on account of Jesus actually never fades or grows dim like it did in Moses. In fact, just the opposite is taking place. Look at verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So rather than a fading glory, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the consequence of the gospel. This is the result of the gospel. And the consequences of it are many and varied. So thoroughly pervasive and excessively abundant and gloriously splendid that intentional redundancy is the only way that we can apprehend what's apprehended us. Listen to that again. So thoroughly pervasive and excessively abundant and gloriously splendid, that intentional redundancy is the only way that we can go, okay, I get it. 
Paul uses language like this all the time. The New Testament, the Greek language is good at this. Our grammar edits this out. This idea of us being transformed, metamorphosed from one degree of glory to another is basically this. It could be translated this way. Glory upon glory or splendid glory or glory, glory. That's what's going on in the gospel. We have been transformed and we are being transformed. How do we convey such a glorious, ongoing and thorough transformation? How do we do that? Do we believe that? That is what's taken place in us and that's what continues to take place in us. How do we put into words this metamorphosis? Verse 18 says we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That word is metamorphosis. That, that process of being changed and completely transformed. This is something that this weak individual, no matter the wordsmithing that takes place and no matter the amount of study and preparation and prayer and pouring out into you, I cannot convey the beauty, the glory, the grandeur, the amazing what we have in the gospel. This is something that we have to regularly come back to and pause and soak and rest and just try to absorb this thing. No 25, 35, 60-minute message is going to do this justice. So can we not just stop and gaze at the wonder and the majesty and the glory and the beauty that is the gospel, that is Jesus. And then why do we think that we are somehow transforming ourselves by our performance, our obedience, our discipline, our whatever? That's what we want to do. That's the human nature in us. We want to bring something to the table. We want to do. You care because of the gospel, because of the spirit that's within you. And now it's like, now what do I do? We learn to live from this position. But why do we insist on trying to accomplish our sanctification when the text right here tells us that we are being transformed? And this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's what verse 18 says. We are being transformed. That is a present passive in the original. That is telling us that right now this is taking place. It's an ongoing thing and it's happening to you. We are recipients of this. Well, what does that look like? That looks like the Spirit doing a work that we can't see and measure. And that scares us. Because I want to see, I want to measure, I want to do, I want to chart my growth and maturity. I see marks occasionally. I'm more mature. I know some would disagree, but I'm more mature now than when I first believed. That's been an ongoing process and journey. My wife wishes I was more mature than I am. However, we're on this journey together. This is what we've believed. This is what continues to transform us. This is what continues to captivate us, to grip us. We don't move on from this to something else. But what happens when I sin? I go back to the gospel and I realize my position, my standing, my identity, who I am in the person of Jesus. And now I don't look to Guile's performance. I look to Christ's performance who fulfilled the law on my behalf. And I can go and live in all these things that I want to see happen. I can go live in obedience and holiness and all this stuff that we want to make much of, it's ours and we only care about it because of this gospel, grace, the Spirit, and that's what Paul's trying to drive home to the church in Corinth. And so therefore, we move into our text, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 18 this is what it looks like then for us to have this ministry and because of this gospel, this Jesus, this spirit, 
so gloriously captivating, so compelling, so pervasive that it consumes us. And when it doesn't, we go back to it. Freedom releases us from bondage. Light consumes the darkness. Life swallows up death. And we're overwhelmed by the glory of this gospel, this Jesus. And so in verses 1 through 6, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, by the mercy of God. Paul collapses on the mercy of God all throughout his writings. Paul knew what he was before Christ. You don't believe? Keep reading 2 Corinthians. He has his resume in there. Read Philippians. He talks about what he used to put stock in, what he used to trust in. But he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. If God wasn't merciful, we would not be the recipients of this salvation. Mike Davis talked about it last week when he talked about us being a grace-based fellowship in Ephesians 2. He just got done talking about how dark it was and who we were before Christ. And what's the transition? The transition from who we were before Christ to now who we are and what we have in the person of Christ happens in chapter 2, verse 4, when it says, But God, being rich in mercy. And then there's a ton of other attributes that go on. But if God wasn't merciful, we wouldn't be sitting here this morning trying to soak in and be reminded of the sufficiency of this gospel that's ours. But because we have this ministry by the mercy of God, the next thing Paul says is we refuse to do a few things. We refuse to lose heart. We refuse to be discouraged. We refuse to quit. We also refuse to employ unsavory methods in this ministry. We refuse to manipulate the message. We refuse to manipulate people. We're not trying to arm twist people, lay on some emotional guilt and burden, stir people up, whip them into a frenzy because we want to feel good about this ministry that we have. No way. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, we're not peddlers of the Word of God. We're not selling you anything. This is not an infomercial every week. This is not a pyramid scheme. I don't get commission. So even when some reject the message, we refuse to water it down. We refuse to manipulate it in any way. And Paul expects people to, re- to reject the message. That's what happens in this text. Listen again to verses 2 and following. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when people reject this gospel, we don't lose heart and we don't change the message because it's not about us trying to secure something We stay on task and we share Christ. So even if we experience suffering, we refuse to quit. We don't employ shady tactics and we don't alter the message. But by the mercy of God, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's verse 5. So 1 to 5. By the mercy of God, we have this ministry It's a ministry of the gospel. And by the mercy of God, we proclaim Jesus as Lord. We're not preaching ourselves. We're not preaching this church. We're not preaching our programming. We're not preaching our image, our reputation, or anything else that might distract from the glorious gospel. Why? Because we can't help but give what we've received. What we have received from God, we give to others. 
There's a hyperlink in verse 6 to the creation account. It says, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the very God who spoke light into existence out of nothing speaks gospel light into our hearts and minds and transforms us and uses us to share this same message and transforms people. That's what's going on in the gospel. That's what we have, this ministry by the mercy of God. So we don't quit. We don't tamper with this message. We're not changing the message to try to get more people in the pew. And then Paul shifts gears and he calls this ministry a treasure. In verses 7 through 12, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul continues to describe the glory of this ministry, this message we have, this person of Jesus, and he uses now imagery that is kind of odd because it doesn't match. The vessel doesn't seem to match the contents. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. We know that we were created from dust and to dust we shall return, right? By way of example, we don't expect this vessel to carry such glory in it. You know me. You know you. You know your faults, your shortcomings, your failures. And you're like, eh. Some of our, our own elders are going, man, I tell my, my family that I'm an elder at this church. And they're like, you? You're an elder? You? I watched you grow up. I've seen your life. I Like, you? So by way of illustration, how would you respond if you saw somebody drinking water from a bedpan? You'd be like, I, I wouldn't do that. You might throw up a little bit, but you're like, you're not expecting that vessel to contain something good in it, right? That vessel of a bedpan could be completely clean and you could have really good spring water in that thing, but just seeing somebody drink that, you're going, ah, that doesn't make sense. That seems to be a contradiction. There's a restaurant in Japan that you don't pull up to a seat, you pull up to a, it's a toilet bowl you actually sit on. You know, so all along the bar too, there's, there's toilet seats that you sit on and then they, they serve your soup or your ice cream in these replica little toilets. And you're like, just, just like mentally, it just messes with you. All the junior high boys just woke up now. You're like, oh, that's so cool. And all the moms are so disgusted. And they're like, great. Now my kid's going to want to try to figure out how to eat out of a toilet bowl. But it's like the, the vessel doesn't seem to make sense with the what's in it. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, we have this amazing, glorious gospel in us. This treasure is in us. Broken down vessels, jars of clay. We have an unlikely glory hidden in us and shining through our broken lives. Why? What does the text say? Why is this the case? It's so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. That's crazy. It's humbling and it's right-sizing. So how do our lives demonstrate the transforming power of God? Honestly, not in ways that you and I want it to happen, right? We don't want it to be displayed this way, but in reality, it's done in ways that we don't like. We want God's power to be on display through our strengths, through our accomplishments, through our achievements, through our successes, through our victories, however we choose to define those. And yet, how is it often on display? Well, much to our dismay, it's through our brokenness. It's through our weakness. It's through, the text is going to tell us, it's through suffering and despair and rejection and affliction and persecution and things like that. Look at verses 8 through 12. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We who live 
are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is crazy because we don't choose this way. We don't like brokenness. I don't want to get up here and, and, and swing and miss on a sermon, right? I want to get up here and hit a walk-off home run. I want everyone to cheer. I want everyone to feel good. I want everyone to, you know, feel what they should feel from that text, right? I don't want to get up here and just trip. I know at some point, because of these stairs, I am going to trip coming up or going down. I'm going to fall. I'm going to face plant. And right now I'm trying to think about how do I work on my tuck and roll, right? It's going to happen. It's inevitable. And we don't like those moments because God's working in those moments, but we want him to work in the times when we look and feel a certain way. And that's more on the line of our successes. We don't like to see him emphasize and highlight our weakness, our brokenness, our failure. And yet, this is what God does. Why? So that the surpassing power is not in my delivery, my wordsmithing, my performance, or the fact that you might resonate with my style. No, all of it is so that God gets all the glory. Hearts and lives are changed and transformed because of the Spirit of God taking this message and doing that work that I am incapable of doing. The idea of preaching a sermon and you being transformed and changed and the Spirit doing a work that I can't see and measure and do whatever, that's mind-blowing to me, but that's what God's doing. This is His ministry that he's entrusted us with this is what he's doing but it's interesting even in verses 8 through 12 when it talks about all this darkness and brokenness and the suffering and affliction and the persecution the accent is not on that experience or that circumstance the accent is on our response and it's a gospel response the accent is on the but not we're not crushed. We're not despairing. We're not forsaken. We are not destroyed. How can we respond this way? Why do we respond this way? People reject the gospel you share with them, and they hate you because of it. How can we respond not being crushed and despairing? We know they're going to spend eternity if they don't respond. How can we not feel a certain way? Because it's not like someone has slandered my favorite team. They're rejecting my Jesus. They're rejecting this gospel. But the accent is on the fact that we are not losing heart. Why do we not dismay? So that the life of Jesus may be on display even amidst our suffering, even amidst our brokenness, even amidst our weakness. Then we move into the next paragraph in verses 13 through 15. And Paul talks about this assurance or this faith, this confidence that we have. And this confidence we have is in the resurrection. It's really interesting in here that Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, what's been written I've believed and so I spoke. He's actually quoting Psalm 116, verse 10. And if you look at Psalm 116, 10, you're going, Paul, I, I would be accused of cherry-picking that thing and, you know, isolating it and either spiritualizing it or, or doing something goofy with the text, right? And so at first glance, it's like, ah. But then if you read the entire psalm, it's amazing because in this entire psalm, the psalmist is expressing thanksgiving and praise to God for his mercy and for his rescue. That's what God's doing. And so on the basis of God's mercy, the psalmist believes he's going to be delivered from his affliction, and he is. And so now the psalmist is mentioning how my response to God's mercy and salvation and rescue is to go be with God's people and celebrate in their presence. And now Paul takes that whole psalm and he's saying, we have the same spirit of faith. And it's actually even more thorough because now instead of just being in the presence of God's people rejoicing, we have the confidence, the assurance, the hope of the resurrection and being in God's presence forever. That's what's taking place in verses 13 through 15. 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. All of this, this ministry, this treasure, this confidence in the resurrection, all of this is on display in our lives so that the rest of verse 15 happens. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so Paul wraps up this paragraph. Now, the argument continues, but we land this plane reviewing this ministry. This ministry is a ministry of the new covenant. It's a ministry of the Spirit. It's a ministry of righteousness. It's a ministry of reconciliation. And so Paul says, we do not lose heart. We don't quit. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Outwardly, we're a mess. Our bodies are breaking down. I know not you college students, you're in the prime of your life and you're like, yeah, whatever. But for the rest of us, this, we see this thing is declining. We can't do what we once did. We're constantly seeing our failure and our brokenness and our bodies are just crumbling. Our emotions vacillate. Our relationships are all over the place. Circumstances are changing constantly for the positive or the negative. And yet, even though outwardly all this stuff is taking place on the horizontal, inwardly, we're being renewed daily by the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We're being renewed daily by life and freedom of the Spirit. We're being renewed daily in this ongoing transformation from one degree of glory to another by Jesus and by the Spirit. This is what's happening to us. So as we finish up this study, over the course of this last month, we have been reminding ourselves of the core values of Waukesha Bible Church what we hold fast to, why we believe what we believe. If you've been new to this fellowship, you've not learned everything you can about Waukesha Bible Church, but we have just highlighted some of the things that we find we hold too tightly, we find significance in. Like Mike said the other day, this is what we're for, and this is really what we want to be known for. This is what's worth protecting internally and promoting externally. There's a reason we're a Christ-exalting, word-centered, grace-based, global-impacting fellowship. This is what we hold to. This is the ministry we've been entrusted with. We can't help it. These four-fold core values sum up what we're all about. And it boils down to one word, and it's Jesus. Now, we explain that, and we have over these last several weeks but we really fly under the banner of Jesus. So our study this morning reminds us of the absolute sufficiency of the gospel to transform us and to consume our ministry internally and externally. The glorious gospel permeates who we are and what we do. We are a fellowship that's gripped by the gospel. We are captivated by Jesus, and we make no apology. So now what? So now what do we do? We learn to live from this reality. We learn to live out the gospel, this new life in the Spirit, this freedom in the Spirit. We learn to live in and figure out and be recipients of what does it mean to be renewed day by day, What is the Spirit doing in us and through us? We collapse on the mercies of God. What happens when you just 
eat gravel, blow it royally. You're like, man, I'm doing the same stupid sin again. We collapse on the mercies of God. We're reminded of the sufficiency of the gospel. And we go back to this glorious gospel and we reflect this glory to others. We live in Jesus and we live out Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're the first ones to admit and confess openly that we don't deserve this at all. If we got what we deserved, we'd all be floundering through life and separated from you for eternity. And yet that is not the reality. Because of your mercy and your great love by which you loved us, you've rescued us from sin and self, and you've made us your sons and daughters, kings and queens. You continue to work in us and through us even when we fight against you and try to do it ourselves. Help us to understand the weight of this gospel, the gravity of our position, our standing before you, and learn to enjoy and learn to live from it and learn to experience life and freedom in the Spirit because of this gracious gospel. May we continue to make much of Jesus and encourage one another to do that. Thank you for this ongoing transformation that you are doing in us and what you started, you promised, you'll complete. Lord, may the gospel be everything to us. May we not ever water down this message or stray from it. And it's because of Jesus that we don't quit. We don't lose heart. Because you continue to be at work. You have won the day and you will win. So we give all glory to you. Even in our weakness, even in our failure, even in our suffering, we boast in Jesus so that your power and glory may be on display. You be glorified in this fellowship. In Christ's name, amen.